You washed up. Sorry? Welcome to the island of discarded women, my friend. I used to be somebody. Are you that woman on the radio? Your island job is peladora de papas. Uh, sorry, what? Potato peeler. 87% match for uh, your skills. Okay, that's not... Anyway, what is the second best match then? Host of the Island Podcast. Are you kidding me? No, no, see, that's me. That That's perfect for me. Okay, we're back after a little bit of a break. So a pastor, a rabbi, and a nun walk into a podcast. Right. Okay, so I invited three women of faith to be my guests for this episode because, well, because I'm feeling very unsettled, and I know I'm not the only one. And I really wanted to hear their perspectives about what I would call the humans, inhumanity to humans we've experienced this past year. Is it possible to find grace or hope or even gratitude amongst the vitriol, the racial injustice, the tragic deaths? In December, I had conversations with Pastor Ingrid Rasmussen, Rabbi Shosh Dorsky, and Sister Jane McDonald, who shared life-affirming reflections and stories. Plus, Regina delivers a powerful poem by Brittany Delaney. Shannon takes us to a family memorial. And Miri, our favorite lava lamp, masks up. Or does she? Miri, hello. Are you there? I'm calling you from my bungalow, Miri. Wake up, please. Hello, hello, hello. Hello, my name is Miri. <gasps> yes, Miri, hi. One. It, it's it's me. Oh, so great to hear your voice. I got a good Wi-Fi signal, so I thought, gosh, I got to try to reach you. Hey, you uh, you got a nice echo going on, Miri. Where are you? Are we in the bathroom or something? I'm sorry. I didn't understand the question. Oh, okay. Sorry. Um, anyway, uh, I'm putting together an order for the drone drop. So does the intake hut need more PPE? I found... P.P. Longstocking. No, Mary, not P.P. Longstocking. We've been through this before. Come on, you know, it's P.P.E. I found P.P., an edible bivalve of Eastern Australia. Really? Called P.P.? I found P.P., a word used for penis when you don't want to say penis. Wow, Mary, you're working blue now? I'm sorry, I didn't understand the question. That's all right. Let's just call it masks and hand sanitizer, Okay. So does the intake hut need more masks or hand sanitizer? Because, you know, we still got to be careful, you know, until the vaccine gets here. I mean, you're masking up, right, Mary? Wait, do you breathe, Mary? No. No, it's it's more like your lava belches. Wow. Mary, do you do you take breaths? Did you mean breasts? No, no, Mary, that's, that's not Recalculating. What... Yeah, that's probably a good idea. Because I think a certain lava lamp has been away from people a little too long. People who need people are the luckiest people in the world. Yep, that's right. You are so right. Oh, I'm craving people right now. Lots and lots of lovely, complicated people standing right next to me. Their arms wide open and ready for big, sloppy, Bear hugs. If hugs were snowflakes, I would send you a blizzard. Oh, that's sweet, Mary. Thank you. I would love that. But we need to eradicate this virus first. And we could have done that a very long time ago if we simply cared about each other. But we don't. We don't. At least not enough of us. Right? I'm sorry. I didn't understand the question. Yeah, I know. I know, I know. Listen, I'm going to order more masks and stuff, okay? And I'll drop them off when they get here. Okay, well, it's really good talking to you, Mary. Please take care, okay? Love you. Okay, 
I love you. Wow, Mary, that sounded almost human. Goodbye. Right, goodbye, right, enough of that. So let's just go now. Okay. There's a familiar breeze in our cities. If you're quiet enough, you can hear the racing heartbeats pounding against chest. See the broken spirits pounding against skin. If you are quiet enough, you can hear God speaking. This is, um, a black lullaby where the streets hum and the people shake a familiar time, a familiar ache, a story as old as tears. This soil we stand on is tired. There is blood in the water and those planted aren't living much past their entrance, blooming less these days. We used to see roses growing from the concrete. Now they are lying on it. Now they are lying flush with it. Now they are lying beneath it. Our spirits are fed up with this war. They keep telling our skin this. They keep leaving our bodies for not being kind places to live. They know they are eternal, but they are tired of being sick. They wonder how we can be so close to God and still not know who God is. We don't listen to the rain anymore. We don't lie by still waters. We can't cleanse the sins of man in this lake. This is not the psalm we had in mind. These segregated limbs, these devastating hymns, how will we get on one accord when so many are tone deaf within? We don't listen to the storm anymore. We can't hear the thunder yelling through the sky. We don't see the light in the strike. We no longer look high. This is the revelation they planned for, the endings sweeping through beginnings, stealing our children in the night, burying our children in the day, a routine as old as the sirens that took them away. In this moment, we are like moments before, and history is screaming at us. It is telling us to take a different road. This one will only end as it always has. This one will only break those who are already in caste. We are not made of stone. These temporary shells are made to break, but break on their own. We are losing the battle on our feet because we aren't seeing the one waging war beyond our bones. We know this like we know our own blood, internalized its views of things until it programmed everything we do, controlled when we move, when we fight, how we think. It taught us to keep moving, but didn't tell us where to go. So we march, we fight, and we do this in a circle. There is a story in the dirt, yes, we need to remember this pain, but nothing is more blinding than hurt. So in this moment, I am choosing to be still, like my grandmother who prays, still, like my faith, like my God, still like my ancestors who knew what to do when spirit was speaking. Still, 
like the waters I am led beside, still, like the front lines, still, like sun up and sundown, still, like my backbone, still, like my foundation, still, in this moment, I still have hope, because trusting in God is still a plan. There is a familiar breeze in our cities. If you are quiet enough, you can hear the racing heartbeats pounding against chest. See the broken spirits pounding against skin. If you are quiet enough, you can hear God speaking. Listen. Ingrid Rasmussen is the lead pastor with Holy Trinity Lutheran in Minneapolis. It's an ELCA church. The ELCA has been ordaining women since 1970, so 2020 marked the 50th anniversary of this milestone. They began ordaining women of color 10 years later, and LBGTQIA plus in committed relationships 10 years after that. So what motivated Ingrid to become a Lutheran pastor? Yeah, that's a good question. So my mom is a church organist. Okay. And so I grew up under the organ pipes in the congregation. Uh, we would climb the back staircase on Saturday night at the church. And I would lay under the pipes in the back pew and listen to her practice for Sunday morning. So I say that like the church was sort of baked into me mm-hmm. at an early age. Um, but the idea of serving upfront as a leader was a whole different concept for me. So after college, I was serving in a free healthcare clinic in South Dakota that served a disproportionately high number of Native Americans. Mm-hmm. And during that experience, I thought, oh, I want to go into law. I want to I want to work in the realm of equity, but in the legal field. Then a friend of mine said, well, you kind of like the study of theology and the practice of theology too. So maybe you should do a joint degree, law and religion. And then uh, that morphed into just studying theology. And rather than studying theology uh, to be an academic, that morphed into being a parish pastor. So I could not have imagined that I would be here at this point in time. Uh, But I'm very grateful for the call that, um, I feel like I'm occupying right now because it's meaningful work and it's meaningful engagement with people. I want to go to George Floyd's murder and the boiling over that happened right in your neighborhood and you opening your doors as a first aid station. Tell me about that decision. Yeah. uh, So The night after George Floyd was murdered, the demonstrations in Minneapolis really were starting to center around the third precinct police station, Mm -hmm. which is located just around the corner from Holy Trinity. So just a block and a half, really. And the civil unrest was really intensifying. And I got a call at home late that evening asking if we would consider as a church opening our doors to become the medic station for the neighborhood. I will admit that the phone call, it was a big ask 
because yeah. our church had been really shut down for two months because of COVID. We were really trying to take our part in slowing the spread really seriously. So we had moved worship and all programming online. And so when the call came to consider um, flinging wide open our doors and welcoming the community in, it was a big ask. So I called a few um, congregational leaders, um, other pastors on staff, and uh, other folks who I knew would already be demonstrating in the area. Our congregation is filled with social activists, so I could um, anticipate who was already there. Yeah, sure. And I called um, one of our members who I anticipated would be there, and he was. And he, in fact, has a church key, so he was well-equipped to open the building. And so church leadership made the decision to open the building. So from the time I got the call to the time that the church doors were propped open with those big wooden blocks was probably about 20 minutes. (gasps) Oh, seriously? Yeah. Mm -hmm. That fast? That fast. Wow. That is really impressive. Yeah. That is really impressive. So you... You throw open your doors and you're a medic station for, tell me about that as far as who you're treating. Yeah. So uh, those nights near the third precinct, most people were coming in with exposure to tear gas. Uh, So if you can imagine a church community room that was totally unprepared for an event like this, You would see street medics in that space, volunteers, and then demonstrators, gallons and gallons of milk Mm. and bottles and bottles of Maalox, not the mint kind. That's the kind you don't want to use. Oh, funny. And um, volunteers were simply pouring milk over demonstrators who had been affected by tear gas. In some cases, demonstrators needed new clothes and new clothes appeared um, out of thin air. I don't know who brought them. Yeah. Uh, there I, were know, I, know who, I know who brought them. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> just saying. You know what I mean? Or just saying. Anyway, go ahead. I'm sorry. Yeah, the spirit, the spirit, the spirit uh, provided. Yeah. Um, some people were just really rightly upset by the situation that we were experiencing in that corner of town. Um, We were one of the few working bathrooms in the neighborhood um, with a lot of the buildings eventually burning. People needed a toilet to keep going and to keep uh, pressuring um, the city to respond to the demands that had followed the murder of George Floyd. So we became kind of a community center of sorts um, and the church smelled like rotten milk for three weeks after uh, the event. There's that gorgeous photo, gorgeous meaning just, it's so powerful. It's a black and white photo of your, your doors are wide open. There's a big first aid sign on one of the doors. There's all this bright light coming. It's nighttime and there's two people pouring milk over somebody's head, basically. And it just says so much. It says so much about your church. It says so much about the situation, the compassion. Yeah. I was eight months pregnant at the time. And um, my husband was sitting next to me on the couch. 
and we turned on the news to see what was unfolding around the church. And he asked, do you think that this is a good idea? For you or Most for the likely church? because of, of my yeah. physical state at the time. Right. And I'm not exactly sure how I responded, but it was something like, I'm not sure if this is a good idea, but this is like the call yeah. that I need to respond to at this point in time, that we mm-hmm. need to respond to as a community of faith. The next morning, with thick smoke still hanging over the church, Ingrid captured the aftermath of the unrest with an emotional Facebook Live video. I had gone home to sleep for a few short hours that evening and then came back pretty early in the morning to just sort of assess what had happened uh, in the neighborhood the night before. And so I decided to do a just kind of a walk around. Um, The National Guard had been called out. So there were folks with guns everywhere. Full riot gear. Yeah. Yeah, right. I wanted to show the landscape and then offer a little bit of commentary about what was happening in the neighborhood, just for our own congregation. I didn't have a plan for that video. And so when I got back to the church, the enormity of the last couple of days kind of overtook me. I mean, both the heartache and desperation that we were experiencing in the neighborhood but also uh, the amazing sense of mutual aid. Um, So it was a really powerful moment. It felt kind of vulnerable to me. I realized I didn't have a Kleenex, a tissue when Mm. I started to cry. And so had to use my face mask (laughs) to wipe my nose, you know, uh, as thousands of people watched on. But that's sort of my understanding of like ministry too. And so I posted the Facebook Live video online and I could see congregants joining me and offering words of of encouragement for the church's work and things like that. And then uh, it just really went wild in terms of where it was being shared. So I don't know, somebody recently told me that it's been viewed 230,000 times. Oh, wow. It went viral, as they say. It went viral. Yeah. Yeah. One of the things that I say at the end of that video, which has really become an important piece for me, is that in Langston Hughes' poem, he talks about um, what happens to dreams that are deferred. Mm -hmm. And he says they explode. Yeah. And um, I want as a faith leader and as a member of this community, I live in this neighborhood as well, to keep reminding us that we are doing all of this. We have responded in all of these ways because a black man was murdered in broad daylight at 38th in Chicago. Yeah. And that is one story among many that represent what Hughes talks about uh, in terms of deferred dreams. So um, I always want to bring us back to the systemic issue that lives behind all of what happened in that uprising. So being eight months pregnant meant that one month later she would have a baby, which she did. And because of her husband's susceptibility to COVID, she checked herself into the hospital alone. 
My husband had a sudden cardiac arrest five years ago. It's the equivalent of dying in a restaurant and being resuscitated by an AED. Wow. So his heart condition really puts him at risk for COVID in ways that a typical 40-year-old wouldn't be. And so we made the hard decision that I would go and give birth to our child alone uh, in normal times, maybe, well, in normal times, he would have accompanied me or uh, another mm-hmm. loved one. And we just felt like we couldn't ask that exposure of anybody. Yeah. And so he and my three-year-old daughter drove me up uh, to the hospital doors and he said, I feel like I'm dropping you off at the airport, except <laughs> I'm not. Because <laughs> you had like and a little rolly bag. <laughs> I did have a little rolly bag <laughs> and uh, a stroller so I could wheel a baby out at the end of it. Oh, funny. And um, walked into the hospital lobby and the um, security guard said labor and delivery that was his first line to me and in normal times I would have been offended (laughs) (laughs) but but, uh, I was grateful for his speed and so I went up to labor and delivery and I was doing pretty well with the whole idea of laboring alone and um, having this baby in my arms alone until a very sweet nurse who was walking me back to my room said, are you expecting anybody to join you? And when she asked that, I just started to weep. And um, I'm sure it was against COVID rules, but she said, can I hug you? And I said, yes, please hug me. And um, she said to me, you will never be alone. And she was right. it was, again, if, if there's a theme, there's this mutual aid theme running throughout this story that folks were so kind and so loving and so willing to accompany me in something that I would have preferred not to have done alone, yeah. uh, but it, that I chose to do alone. Ingrid's church is still doing services virtually. The virus has also affected her ministry in other ways. I think ministry with the dying has been one of the real grief points with COVID. In more quote-unquote normal times, I would be at the bedside of people while they're dying, and I would be the one with my prayer book in hand and making the sign of the cross with oil on their forehead and mustering up all the heart space that I can Um, gather to sort of do some of the heavy lifting of the end of life care. But now I'm separated and joining by FaceTime or by Zoom. And in those cases, I really rely on the either very intimate caregivers that are with the people who are dying or medical professionals to serve in the role that I would traditionally serve in. So um, I did one commendation of the dying where it was just the, the man who was dying, a beloved congregant, and a nurse. And the nurse was there um, making the sign of the cross on his forehead. Wow. Um, and I, I don't know what her religious tradition 
was or is or and it doesn't really matter she volunteered to serve in the role that he needed her to serve in and um, that was a powerful experience and there have been multiple of those over the course of this pandemic well even going back to you going into labor and the nurse saying anybody going to accompany you and you say no and, and becoming very emotional and can I hug you so there you've got nurses playing family members, spouses, whatever. And then in that situation, you've got the nurse standing in partially for you, but also for a close family member, perhaps. And I am just amazed at what these healthcare workers are going through right now, and what they're doing right now. Yeah. And it's unbelievable how they're standing in and the multiple roles that they're playing. It's just, I don't know how we thank them enough. So looking ahead, is finding grace or hope a possibility? When I feed Lars or hold Lars, uh, I am reminded that his life coming into the world, new life for our family, is bound up with new life for others. And so there's a sense that When he's satiated, I think about, I dream of a world where others are satiated as well. When he's delighting, I dream of a world where the community has that ability and that privilege too. Um, So there's something about watching him grow that allows me to imagine the world that I think God envisions which looks a little bit different than the world that we've created. And it allows me to, to dream and hope and believe that there's something new that can arise out of all of this. I asked Ingrid if there was a verse or a piece of text that really spoke to her. Yes, Mary's Magnificat from the Gospel of Luke. She learned the text through a piece of music called Holden Evening Prayer. My soul proclaims your greatness, O God, and my spirit rejoices in you. You have looked with love on your servant here and blessed me all my life through. Great and mighty are you, O Holy One. Strong is your kindness. Strong is your kindness evermore. Oh, you favor the weak and lowly one, humbling the proud of Holy Trinity Lutheran Singers, virtually directed from their homes by Anne Schruten and accompanied by Rachel Trillstad Porter. These are the McDonald sisters. Jane McDonald, the youngest, entered the Order of St. Joseph of Carondelet when she was 19, following three of her older sisters who had entered earlier. In the 1960s, while cooking at a Catholic high school... And I served juicy Angelitas instead of sloppy Joes. Angelitos? It was Holy Angels was the name of the school. Jane was inspired to join the peace movement after hearing an anti-war activist speak about the tragedies of the Vietnam War. She then convinced her three older sisters to join the movement, and the decades-long peace and justice legacy of the McDonald sisters was formed, along with 
fiercely focused peace activism and civil disobedience that sometimes resulted in being arrested, Jane worked at Seton Center, a home for unwed mothers, and at the bridge, a shelter for runaway youth. Peace is her passion, and it manifests itself in everything she is. I was fortunate to play Jane in Sisters of Peace, an original production about the McDonald sisters at the History Theater two years ago. To me, Jane, now in her mid-80s, is the embodiment of grace. She started our Zoom conversation with a favorite ritual. I have a candle lit. Let there be light. This summer, the two oldest McDonald sisters, both in their 90s, tested positive for COVID-19. Thankfully, both were asymptomatic. But because of their care facilities restrictions, Jane hasn't been able to see them in person since last spring. I asked her for her thoughts about this virus. Well, the the virus is a really challenging mixed bag, I think, because it's, it's taken such a grip on all of us, uh, physically, psychologically, the whole person and the whole the whole earth almost. I've read some things that says the virus was a kind of paradox. It actually slowed us down to the point of having to think deeply, reflect very personally. And as you do that, you come to grips with them. What's personal is usually universal. It brings the best out of us and sometimes the worst. Yeah. So it's it's a it was an article that I was very appreciative to try and even see the positive and the gratefulness for something so awful, so seemingly vicious and yeah. overwhelming, right? And death yielding. Yeah. That there might somewhere deep in the mystery of life, this this virus itself has called us to stop mm-hmm. and reflect. Yeah. Maybe there's a profound mystery that this is calling us to change what needed to be changed. And the murder of George Floyd this summer, what does she think that is calling us to do? What I feel grateful to him for and his crying out about his very lifeline to breathe helped us to catch our breath and speak to what it really was. And it it is, it's a wake-up call to the root of evil, genocide, and slavery. Our country was built on those two realities. And those are things that I think are, for me and for all of us, yeah. is a wake-up call. Right. It's overdue. I think it's all overdue. Yeah. So we have a serious uh, obligation to pay attention to what the root of all this kind of violence is causing. Yeah. You know, it's interesting at this time when we've got a virus that takes our breath away, And people are struggling to breathe and that's why they go to the hospital and that's why they have to be intubated with, you know, machines and tubes and everything. Then we've got this murder where he's crying out saying, I can't breathe. Maybe we we lost track of appreciating breath. I mean, you know, maybe that's the lesson. Yes. Yes. Oh, I love that appreciation and gratitude. Right. That's full circle, almost a full circle of uh, if you pay real close attention and you listen carefully, you can arrive at gratitude. So we're catching up. We're catching our breath. Yeah. We're speaking louder and more carefully mm-hmm. uh, and wisely. Wisdom, by the way, would be a very significant uh, quality to come and apply at this time. You need yeah. a lot of deep, deep wisdom. Yeah. And there's an expression of this uh, spirituality of the Native people says, 
no abuse of power will ever lead to wisdom. Mm-hmm. I, I, I love that. If we lose track of wisdom, we will, we will, yeah, we'll choke. We won't have a breath. Yeah. We won't have the refreshment of a breath. The day after 9-11, in September of 2001, Jane, her sister Bridget, and other activists were engaged in their weekly peace vigil on the Lake Street Bridge. That somber day, they were protesting all forms of violence, whether done to the U.S. or perpetrated by the U.S. towards others. A group of angry young men didn't like that this was happening and were dangerously driving their truck back and forth on the bridge, shouting offensive names and screaming expletives. One of the men got out of the truck and headed right for Jane, demanding that she get off the bridge, and that if she didn't like this country, she should go back to where she came from. Frightened, but stealing herself, Jane looked him in the eye and calmly told him that she was an American, though, as a MacDonald, her family was originally from Ireland, and, you know, weren't many of us from other countries initially, including him, and what was his name? He mumbled that his name was Radke. Like our twins pitcher, Brad Radke? When he quietly admitted that, yes, he was related to Brad Radke, she was in. The confrontation quickly turned into a conversation that resulted with an invitation for Jane and Bridget to have lunch with he and his grandmother, which they did a few weeks later. When I had that experience, I felt it was a mutual gift because the opposition to what we were trying to do in the peace movement on the bridge, uh, it met with such harsh opposition that we had. They they demonstrated a very harsh opposition by truck driving and raising their voices and their flags. And it, it was like I almost had a heads up and a hearts up. I had a little uh, significant opportunity mm-hmm. to see and gather my own wits and wisdom. We couldn't deny it. It was so blatant. You learn from that poignant moment that you have to uh, not try to convert somebody, but use your own time. Of, maybe you had a conversion in your own way that now is the time that it will surface. I mean, I, I really believe in the gift of grace. So it's very humbling. It's a humbling moment when you found something that you could actually say that works. You feel it in your whole being. Oh, this works. I can see that we're, we're going to get somewhere. And you're right. We ended up having lunch together and meeting Graham. I mean, it was a mar- So it's, I know that it's, if you believe deeply enough, you, you'll get the gift of, and the grace of the moment. And then you're grateful. You're humbled and grateful. It just, it breaks my heart, actually. It breaks my heart that there are congregations that believe or follow religious leaders who are perpetuating racism and the bigotry, and they feel that they are speaking the word of God. And I just am like, I have a real hard time with that. Very hard time with that. Well, rightly so. Rightly so, Sue. It's enraging. And I, I don't know how to change it, but we have to get off of that arrogant position that we're the one and only. Because Buddha, Allah, whatever name you give to a creator, I, I honor what I believe that we have a, we've been created mm-hmm. to a profound, multiple creator. I say sometimes we even have species arrogance. We forget who was here first, the great sacred creatures that we could learn. And you're right, under the guise of saying, well, my God is the only God and the real God and the yours is, it doesn't create goodness. It is not going to create the kind of change that I and we need. Mm. So 
we have every right to have a just rage and disappointment, all of those things. But I think it's real important right now. Now is the time to embellish and nurture the power of goodness, yeah. the power of gratitude over the power of evil. So I'm, I'm choosing to, to really believe that my rage is justified and I have to discern when is the moment and with whom do I say enough is enough mm-hmm. or, or stay in silence doesn't have to always mean consent. Mm-hmm. It can mean a discernment. And it's, it's really hard. Yeah. I mean, I'm not, I'm not denying that. It's, I think it's the challenge of our time. Um, forgiveness. We didn't say a lot about the word forgiveness, but yeah. sharing one time with a person in a domestic uh, violence thing, I went right away. I went to forgiveness and I was stopped. This holy person stopped and said, that's easy for you to say. I must be rageful first. You have to work through the rage. And I learned a big lesson. I was jumping on the forgiveness wagon and was told, just slow down. I mean, that's how I I listened with my heart in that moment. I learned from the person who was had the just rage. And I thought, she's right. Yeah. She had to go through these experiences and the situation. And she called it like it was. Right. I'm going to read a little thing that works for me. Okay. Great. Um, We all have within us and within one another the power to heal. Yeah. We have the power to heal. And this, as harsh as everything is, we have to tap that ability to become healers. And I like the expression of we're wounded healers. There's no one that's not walking around with some kind of a wound, you know. Yeah. Um, I think that's real critical to just identify that we're wounded healers and then accentuate the healing piece of it. I think that's important. You're not, hopefully not in denial. I mean, we all have our denial. I I talk like change is so good and so important, but you know, when it comes, I, I have my own resistance. One time I heard uh, in our tradition of the seven sacraments, well, resistance is an eighth sacrament. It's a, it's a sacred sign that you have to know what to resist and what to embody and, live through it. And you'll, you'll know. I mean, I, I believe I w- I'm trusting that I will keep believing and knowing that we can get through this uh, virus and this awful evil of uh, racism and inequality. Yeah, I think it's a deliberate choice of the heart and soul. I'm sure I'm not alone. We're in communion with the uh, believing that and enforcing that and not right. trying to convert everybody but yourself. We have our first female vice president. So if you take that as a harbinger, the things are changing. Would the next step be female priests? <laughs> <laughs> oh, you know, that whole argument. Do you think we'll ever see female priests in any of our lifetimes, Jane? Well, I, I don't feel the importance of aspiring after the priesthood as we've known it. Yeah. I think everybody has the universal priesthood or priestess or goddess energy. Yeah. Uh, that's a reality for yeah. me. Mm-hmm. And we don't want to uh, start getting off kilter and ambitious about a power that would cause more destruction than construction. Yeah. So that, that's kind of a philosophical way <laughs> of not wanting to perpetuate uh, Catholicism or hierarchical clergyism. 
as I've experienced it, and not just me, as we've known that yeah. in, in the denomination called Catholic, yeah. which should mean universal. We ought to re, redefine some of these things. So I'm, I'm thrilled about the new vice president. She's standing on the shoulders and on the heart and the ability of a whole history of women. Yeah. Paid a big price. And I'm thrilled about her presence there now. It's going to make a difference. Yeah. It is already making a difference. We should be just thrilled and excited and enthusiastic about the power of finally lived long enough to see a justice moment. This thought that Jane wants to leave us with is also a McDonald sister mantra. And accentuate the positive, and we will eliminate the negative. Accentuate the positive, eliminate the negative. When you wake up the morning of your aunt's funeral and realize that you're not leaving the house, that you're not going to hug your cousins or help warm up casseroles or hold your mom's hand because she just lost her best friend, that you're not going to drink wine later in an overcrowded family room filled with folding chairs and share stories into the night, you're not going to wash dishes, barefoot by then, in a black dress, and then try to get people to take something home, please. There's just so much. Well, when that happens, you learn a new way to grieve. I was sent a link for my aunt's funeral and I put it on my calendar, but it looked like everything else. A meeting for work, a training webinar. My husband encouraged me to clear my schedule. You're going to a funeral, he said. I'm not going anywhere, I snapped back. You know what I mean, he said. Yeah, I guess I was going to a funeral. I put a dress on, slipped on a pair of slippers and went downstairs my commute for the last nine months. I poured a glass of California White, my aunt's favorite, as an honor. I had set up a TV tray with those battery candles in the family room the night before, a kind of shrine, something. I didn't want it to look like I was logging into yet another meeting on Zoom. I clicked the link that my mom had forwarded to me and found myself in a virtual waiting room. A hymn was playing in a tinny way on my computer. The event will start in three minutes, my screen told me. I texted my mom, who lives three hours away in northern Minnesota. She texted back. We were going to the funeral together. A new way of being together. Suddenly, the picture on my screen opened up, and I was looking down into the chapel of the mortuary in Southern California. I took it in fast. I saw the casket, the flowers, the podium, my family. The camera, our view, was mounted in a strange corner shot, up high and away like I was suspended in a security camera. My eyes landed on my cousin Kim, a red dress, a black mask. Seeing her on my screen, the set of her shoulders gutted me. I felt a kind of panic. There's my cousin Sandy, Mike, oh my god, maybe this is worse, maybe I should just log off. I leaned forward, squinting. I wanted to zoom in, you know, reach through the screen. I saw Kim put a hand briefly on her stepdad's shoulder as she passed him, sitting down in her seat that was carefully spaced from the others. I noticed that everyone was wearing red, my aunt's favorite color. Red dresses, vests, ties. I noticed how the women, too, they wore sandals. No one had a coat. There was snow outside my window. I felt even farther away. I tried not to think about how my cousins had to decide which family members could mourn in person and which ones would have to click on the same link I had just clicked on. Only 35 made the cut. 
We were grateful for that number. We were lucky. God, the music. I would have preferred just looking down from my corner and just hearing silence and occasional movement. My cousin Mike walked up to the podium and, oh my God, the music was still playing. We couldn't hear the eulogy. Mom and I texted frantically back and forth, crying out to each other, angry, stressed. I, I think my mom even made a joke in there somewhere, and then the music cut abruptly. I envisioned someone hitting a space bar in a panic, and then I heard my cousin's voice. He welcomed those of us tuning in online, and in that flash of a moment, I didn't feel so far away. His voice was clear. He could have been in the room with me. When it was done, I looked around our family room. I had now just said goodbye to my aunt in that space, and it felt different somehow. The camera remained on well after the service. Maybe on purpose. Maybe someone had just forgotten to turn it off. I sipped my wine and watched the most normal, comforting part of this whole thing. Watching my family come in and out of frame, you know, deciding who was taking which flowers. They had masks on, and I couldn't hear them anyway, but I knew what they were saying. Can you fit these in your car? You just bring them to Mom's. We'll figure it out. I could have watched this all day. I didn't actually leave the page link the rest of the afternoon. Eventually, the stream ended, and there was a little message on my screen. Thank you for being with us. I guess I had been there. And for that, I was grateful. Shannon's Aunt Pat died of cancer, which she had been battling for most of her life after being diagnosed with breast cancer at the age of 29. She was in remission up until recently, but lost her amazing fight with the disease at 75 years old. Rabbi Shosh Dorsky was ordained at the Jewish Theological Seminary in New York City in 1998, making her part of the first generation of women rabbis. In 2005, she became an associate chaplain at Carleton College in Northfield, Minnesota. She's also been the rabbi of Temple Shalom in Eau Claire, Wisconsin for the past 10 years. Then in 2019, Rabbi Shosh joined the campus ministry staff at St. Olaf, a private college also in Northfield, Minnesota, built in 1874 by Norwegian Lutherans. She is the first rabbi in its history to join the staff at St. Olaf. She sent me a video of the first time she spoke at chapel at St. Olaf. So was this the first time that she'd ever spoken in a Christian church? Probably. I have spoken to a lot of church groups, Mm -hmm. but yeah, I don't think it was actually in church. So that was your first time actually speaking in a church? I think so. That first appearance, uh, the hymn leading off the service was taken from the 23rd Psalm. Yeah, the 23rd Psalm, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want green pastures, valley of the shadow of death. So um, because, yes, A, because I know it's part of this Christian world, because right. it's in the, as you call it, the Old Testament. So it's mm-hmm. a shared, a shared text. And um, that particular talk that day in chapel was It was a stressful time of year. I think it was the end of the term. So people were in finals and going summer plans, next year plans. It's all stressful. And this image of um, walking through the valley of the shadow of death, uh, this was not, God willing, it was not shadow of death, literally for a lot of the listeners, but terror, real terror. This is a very 
college kids, I think the statistics show it's a very anxious generation. And so anything calming, um, anything a sort of validating, yes, it's stressful. Right. And you're in great, you're in good company. But then be, you know, somehow drawing on the image in that same psalm of still waters and green yeah. pastures. Yeah. What I loved at the end of that first service was um, a bunch of kids lined up to talk to you. Yeah. What were they wanting to talk to you about? You know, a variety of things. I mean, some kids are just naturally curious. And maybe I was the first rabbi. Maybe I was the first Jew right. they had ever met. I mean, kids come to St. Olaf from outstate Minnesota where there are no Jews. And they may just going, wow, wow, I got to know about this. Shosh is a rabbi in the conservative movement, which started ordaining women in 1985. Yes, and it is called the conservative movement, but it's um, if you don't know the different movements in Judaism, you might think, oh, I'm conservative, like as in Politics. conservative socially or fiscally or something. It's not yeah. about that. It was a movement that was more conservative than the reformers in the middle of the 19th century. With the Enlightenment and with the opening up of European culture, Jews, where they were given the opportunity, wanted to assimilate um, wanted to become more fully part of the societies where they were living in Europe. And actually here we're talking especially about Germany. And um, that's where the reform movement was born, saying, woohoo, we can be part, we can be citizens. I think a lot of people don't realize that Jews were denied citizenship in a lot of places for mm -hmm. a long time in Europe. Now we can be citizens. We can work in all the trades, which we couldn't before. We can attend German universities, but oh dear, how are we going to do that with our specific observances like the Sabbath on Saturday or like the dietary laws? And oh, let's get rid of all that. That was, um, oh, I'm painting this with very, very broad strokes. Sure, of course, of course, but of course. Those are the reformers. And the conservative movement came in and said, well, wait, we do want to be part of the modern world, but we believe there's a, a golden mean. There's a way to stay traditional to stay, to hold fast to our traditions and still integrate into the modern world. So you lived in Israel for uh, a few years. Yeah. Were you studying or was that on your own or? Yeah. That, so that was on my own. I had graduated the University of Minnesota with a degree in violin, uh, but I had taken Hebrew as a, as a language. I also knew how to read the Hebrew alphabet from childhood Hebrew school, but I, I, in college, I got a firmer base. I graduated with this violin in my hand and something was telling me, you don't really want to be a violinist. Um, and I said, I really want to, I want to go to Israel. Mm -hmm. I, uh, I was intrigued and excited mm -hmm. about Israel. Uh, this was, uh, the early, late seventies, early eighties. Okay. So I got there. And as far as the language goes, I, I hit the ground running. So I really became fluent and that was just a tremendous joy for me. I'm a language person. And you know, I just have to say as a Jew and especially as a Jew in Minnesota, when you get to Israel and you get off the plane and there's signs in Hebrew, oh. it's like, oh, this is a real thing, you know? This isn't just in the classroom, you know? Sure. This isn't just in the synagogue. It's hard to describe how 
kind of life-altering that is for a lot of people. The violin was out. So what led her to become a rabbi when female rabbis weren't a thing as she was growing up? I grew up in the reform movement, um, and I had a wonderful, wonderful youth group experience. It was all mixed ages, mixed gender. We had a brilliant, the senior rabbi at Mount Zion Temple in St. Paul, um, a very serious intellectual. And, and I remember Rabbi Schwartz teaching us Job. Oh. He was teaching us about a struggle with understanding suffering. I don't remember any of his words, but I have a visual of Rabbi Schwartz, like with his forehead in his hand, and struggling, grappling. And that's what I remember. And I remember thinking, oh my God, grown-ups struggle and grown-ups uh, suffer. And this, the synagogue, is a place where they do that. And in that moment, I think I sort of became an adult. Oh. Um, recognizing and, and also that set the stage for me wanting to really keep putting down roots within the Jewish world because it just seemed critical. Now, I am getting ready to graduate high school. And I remember Donnie Rossoff, hi, Donnie, uh, <laughs> saying, I'm going to study to be a rabbi. I'm going to rabbinical school. And I literally, and I know on this island of discarded women, you know this feeling, mm -hmm. it felt like that door just like you're about to walk through the door and it slams in your face. Mm -hmm. Just as you, because I realized I'm going to be, um, and, and I didn't have words for this at the time, but that's when I understood, whoa, yeah. uh, this religion, this culture treats boys and girls differently. Yeah. And I had no idea what to do about it, and I just majored in violin. <laughs> so I came back from Israel the very year that the conservative movement yeah. began ordaining women. Okay. And the first female rabbi in the Twin Cities had been hired at Mount Zion. And I, fresh off the boat from Israel, um, they hired me to teach Hebrew to the children. And so I got to work under and with a female rabbi uh, for the first time. Yeah. And then it was like, oh, okay. And that's when, you know, one begins to see uh, new possibilities. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about um, the murder of George Floyd and, and everything that happened afterwards. You were telling me earlier about the memorial service for George Floyd that was led by the Reverend Al Sharpton. Yeah. And in one of your writings, you said Sharpton's sermon went from real time to the timeless and eternal nature of God. By the end, he was shouting the words, God is, God has, God shall. It was powerful. He had me. Mm -hmm. Then you tell us where that comes from in the uh, Hebrew text. I, I can tell you where it, where it appears yes. in, in, a, in a hymn in that a hymn. we, it's a medieval hymn that we sing always, every day, every Sabbath. Um, where that line is exactly in the Hebrew. He was, he is, sorry, it's very gendered. Hebrew is a gendered language. And so that's a whole nother podcast about yeah. how people are struggling with that. Yeah. Um, but God was, God is, God shall be. We sing that. Um, we usually sing it to an upbeat tune because it's at the end of the service. 
And I think in the 21st century, we have a little bit of trouble talking about the theological, using the language of God and, and asserting. I don't think we have trouble in asserting the optimism and the timelessness that Sharpton was doing, that there is something above us and constant and solid and good. I, I certainly think we teach and assert that and strive for that. So yeah. it was inspiring to, yeah. hear him, to hear him say it that way. And you were, we were talking about uh, Jews and the faith, knowing Sharpton's history with yeah. anti-Semitism. Yeah. And that some of these friends, colleagues, students feeling confused about how then to treat him as one of the leaders of this, this social unrest that, that followed George Floyd's murder. I have to say that people who remember or people who have followed uh, Reverend Sharpton's journey mm-hmm. tend to skew older, but older generations have followed him nervously, I would say nervously. Um, Jews are always assessing, is this dangerous? Is this bad for us? Or should we just blow this off? And, and you know, the first time I saw the young generation, the, these college students, mm-hmm. um, is when there was the shooting at the Tree of Life Synagogue. Yeah, That was on a Saturday, a Sabbath morning at Carlton that night. We filled up the chapel. Mm-hmm. Mostly Jewish students came confused mm-hmm. because they're thinking, well, is this just one crazy guy? Does this ideology that he espouses is just an anomaly? Should we be nervous? We aren't a generation that grew up feeling nervous about anti-Semitism. America is a wonderful place to be Jewish. We have not seen ourselves as potential victims, mm-hmm. um, certainly not like our parents or grandparents do. And yet here's this shooting that's so horrible and at a synagogue, mm. um, they were struggling. Are we white and strong and privileged and we need to just use our privilege? Or do we also have um, this other part of who we are, which is uh, a small minority with a history of oppression and violence against us? Mm -hmm. How do we assess? Um, I had a, a Carlson student actually come to an event. She came from a coffee shop in Northfield and she was very shaken. I said, what's going on? She said, I was just sitting in the coffee shop in Northfield and I heard a conversation next to me that was really anti-Semitic. And and it was a sucker punch to her. She had never been in the presence of it. So it's a combination of this is new to me and this is horrifying. And then you start asking "Is, is this just anomalous? I just happened to be next to this weird table full of anti-Semitic guys or is there something bigger going on and you don't know and I all I could do is you know walk with her through that moment uh, because I don't have the answers the Jewish community is not monolithic first of all we there are plenty of Jews of color uh, including at Carlton and St. Olaf and so they're going to have a different story to tell but for the most part the Jewish students today see themselves as fairly safe and empowered and ready and available, you know, hands on deck to support those who are less so. A lot of beautiful energy of solidarity and wanting to help and wanting to examine. 
very inspiring. Not just the Jewish students, by the way, at both colleges, you know, students are really, yeah, they want to do good. They right. want to do good. They want to help. When I first mentioned to you that the overall theme for this episode was grace, hope, and gratitude. And can any of that be found during this time, you know, at, at this point that we're in, in history at, at the end of this particular year. And we talked about grace uh-huh. and you mentioned that it's a very Jewish concept, the definition of grace mm-hmm. and yet grace sounds so Christian. Yeah. And that rabbis have to sort of find a different term. Um, you defined it as unearned and undeserved goodness. And I actually looked up the Miriam Webster definition of grace uh-huh. and their first definition is unmerited divine assistance given uh-huh. to humans for their regeneration or sanctification. Well, that's beautiful. Kudos to Miriam Webster. Yeah. Um, first of all, the word for grace is all over um, the scriptures and, and the liturgy as well, especially, you know, and there's a scene with Moses after the golden calf, when things are really stressful and God is really at the end of God's rope and Moses is angry. And when it, but God lists these attributes and Rahum v'chanun is right at the top, merciful and chanun, which is gracious. Mm. And it's probably translated that way. I guess it sounds different than just grace by itself. But that's, you know, Moses is saying, God, I know who you are. You are compassionate. And you are gracious, as in you are good to us, even when we screw up. Yeah. Um, And you understand that the human nature is, you know, we are by nature imperfect and we screw up all the time. And the only thing that gives us hope is knowing that you are merciful and gracious. So was there a verse from the Jewish texts that she was finding meaningful right now? So this Hine Matoch, is taken from Psalm 133. How good it is and how lovely when brothers, but sometimes now we egalitarianize it and say siblings or brothers and sisters dwell together. So in the Hebrew, it's hine matov umanaim shevet achim gam yachad. Hine matov Shosh's brother, Rich Dorsky, combined two traditional melodies to create this arrangement of Psalm 133. The lead singer is their sister, Sally Dorsky. My conversations with these three happened before the ugly events on January 6th. Jane talked about a just rage. So, couldn't one say that those storming the Capitol were acting on a just rage? No, no you couldn't, because they weren't. That rage was based on lies and racism and misogyny. A fantasy of an all-white, all-male world brought on by force isn't just, it's just rage. That's all. Nothing just about it. So where do we go from here? Well, 
If we're up to me, I say we follow Amanda Gorman because she is our future. We have a movement on the island, WW Shush. When women show up, shit happens. Amanda, you showed up at the inauguration with your powerful poem, and we are all changed because of it. I cannot wait to see where you lead us, Amanda, because I am so ready to follow. Thank you. Thank you for embodying grace and hope and gratitude. God bless you. Okay, that's our episode. Huge thank you to my guests, Ingrid, Jane, Shosh. Thank you for showing up with grace time after time. And thank you to Regina Marie Williams and Brittany Delaney for that beautiful poem. And thank you, Shannon Custer and Sylvia Pontaza and Tony Axtell for all you do. Until we can be live again, we've been asking for support to help pay our creative team for these From Home episodes. I am so touched by all of you who have donated since last spring and want to send out a special thank you to our new donors. Anne M., George D. and Bonnie H., Suzanne O., Terry E., Candace B., Carol O. and David L., Annie O., Jean F., Michelle T., Barry M., Sylvia P., and Noel J. If you would like to help, you can donate any amount at our website, islandofdiscardedwomen.com. All donors get a 20% discount from Flip'em the Bird. When you don't have the words, let your gloves say it for you. Shop their fingerless gloves and knit hats at flipemthebird.com. Okay, mask up, everybody. We'll be back soon with another episode of Island of Discarded Women. Thank you. I'm Sue Scott. Yeah.